0: through Gary's post, I couldn't help but think about some of the, some of the issues with um, the Salesforce platform, particularly with testing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And really, as it relates to test-driven development, which I have argued for a long time, really doesn't work on Salesforce for several reasons. Um, but the reason that's kind of highlighted in, in uh, Gary's post here is really just the speed thing. So um, this is kind of a long post and and it's actually a really good one too. So I suggest anyone go read it. Um, But I've just, I've got some highlights that, that I think apply to how I feel about the issues with uh, testing on Salesforce. So he says, uh, David's tests run in a few minutes and he's fine with that. I'm not fine with that. And a lot of other people are not fine with that. And that's the fundamental issue. It's possible that I'm the most impatient programmer on earth. I want my feedback to be so fast that I can't think before it shows up. If I can think, then I'll sometimes lose attention and I don't want to lose attention. I aim for test feedback in 300 milliseconds from the time I press enter to the time I have a result. That's not an abstract desire. I frequently achieve it. Uh, Here are the tests for Destroy All Software's catalog class. So he shows some output from his tests and they finish in, I don't know, like 0.24 seconds. Um, I think that's a really good point he makes here which is i don't i want my tests you know to run so fast that I don't have time to think because if I do I'll lose attention and that is precisely the problem I have not only with testing on force.com but this whole model of you don't have a local any kind of local compiling or a local engine or anything it all gets anytime you want to even just like save an apex class you know it requires not only a, a round trip to the, to the salesforce server to save and compile it but it's, it's slow. And we're not talking about, you know, mill, hundreds of milliseconds here. We're talking about, in my experience, minimum 10 seconds. And in a lot of orgs, and I don't know, I don't know what all goes into this, it's, it's not just amount of code or anything, but some orgs are much slower than that. Some, I've got clients with orgs that it takes 30 seconds. You make a one-character change in Apex class and save it, it's 30 seconds to compile. And the problem with that, even, even the problem with just 10 seconds, is that is plenty of time for me to flip over to Twitter. Or to you know the news or something, and or in the case of cor- the mavens, may play a game <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and you always think, oh, I'm just going to flip it for ten seconds, and then I'll come back and hopefully it'll be done compiling. Well, you know, then you then you see a link to some article that's interesting or whatever, right? And so, I mean, that's the problem with it. And if anyone has even the slightest amount of like ADD or anything, I mean, it's 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 really a huge problem. I mean, it's it's not acceptable in most programming circles, right? And and this, that's exactly what Gary's talking about here. Like it's it's not
1: acceptable if he has to, you know, if he has to wait. You know, his his goal is three hundred milliseconds. But so, are we talking individual tests? Are we talking entire regression tests that are being run across the system? I mean, what what is he referring to? So,
0: okay, so the example he gave here, this he just and he ran one spec, so one R spec test, um, and it was one hundred five lines of test covering fifty nine lines of production code, and it ran in two hundred forty milliseconds from end to end with only seven of those milliseconds being actual tests. So that means that most of that time was spent in just like firing up Ruby and all this other stuff. The actual running of his test was like seven milliseconds. So he could have tested way more code, right? He He could have had tests that covered way more code and way more lines of tests, and it would have actually not impacted that 300 milliseconds very much at all because 297 of those milliseconds were from just firing up, you know, Ruby, and the RSpec framework not actually running the test. He says uh, these tests are fast enough that I can hint I can hit Enter, which is his test running keystroke. And any, you know anyone who knows anything about Gary knows that he's got. I mean his his setup is it's it's incredibly fine tuned. Like and he's a, a command line and Vim master, and he's got you know tmux windows, and it's all perfectly arranged, and everything's keystroke driven. He never takes his hand off his off his keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um. But he says, uh, the tests are fast enough I can hit enter and have a response before I have time to think. It means the flow of my thoughts never breaks. Um, if you've watched um, the Destroy All Software screencasts, you know that I sometimes run tests 10 times per minute. He runs tests 10 times per minute. Can you imagine doing that on Salesforce? No. I mean, to, run, to run your test 10 times would take 10 minutes. And, and I don't know, we talked about compiling being... Taking minimum ten seconds, but but tests take you know probably an order of magnitude longer than that, and I I don't know why. I mean, I'll run very simple tests in Salesforce that may not even do anything, you know, even with any database or anything, and it's it's very. And we're talking about minutes. I mean, you basically just have to run the async test execution thing, and then you know that actually queues a job. (laughs) And there's no guarantee when that job. It's not like you started a job; you just queued a job. Right. And then when they actually run, they're really slow. And I, um, he says, uh, all of my screencasts are recorded live after doing many takes to smooth out the presentation. So you're seeing my actual speed, not the result of editing. Um, Walking through a part of my TDD process will make this whole process more concrete. I first write a new test and run it by hitting enter. This runs only the current test file. It also sets that file as active, meaning that hitting enter from anywhere in the production code will rerun it. The tests run in a tmux pane to the right of my editor, so they stick around even while I'm editing code. I expect them to fail since I just wrote a new, hopefully
1: failing test. A so quarter of us. will pause right there. So he's he's basically set it up to where as soon as he hits the enter key, doesn't matter for whatever reason, it's going to run the test.
0: Yeah, because again, you got to remember he's in Vim, so he's not using enter to move up or down or anything. He's using the either the arrow keys or you know J K. Yeah, so he's he's set it up so that enter all it does is run tests. Um, I mean, it could have be easily been just any, I mean, you can customize it to be whatever key you want, but that's just his setup. Right. Um, I'm sure you have that's Eclipse, great. and I've got things set up so that I, you know, I can run tests with just a, it's a combination key, but it's just a single, you know, key combination. Let's see. Uh, after Okay. A quarter of a second after I hit enter, the tests have finished running. I flick my eyes to the output for less than a second. I know where the exception name will appear in the trace pack. Usually, I'll see the exception name that I expect. Because the tests run so fast, I literally do not have a chance to th- to do anything before they finish, so I can't get distracted. By the time my eyes have moved to the test pane, the output is already there. While my eyes were moving to the test pane to confirm that the correct exception was raised, my fingers were switching to the production code file. I make whatever change will cause the test to pass. It's usually a small change, which is the nature of TDD when well done. I then Kick off another test by hitting enter. This runs the same test file as before because it was implicitly set as the active test. I expect it to pass, and it does, but I only know this because I see green in my peripheral vision. There's no reason to actually focus my eyes on the test output. I've seen many tests fail, made a production code change, and seen the test pass. Uh, A few seconds have elapsed since I ran the failing test. You've spent an order of magnitude more time reading these few paragraphs about it. Unlike David, I'm not exaggerating here for rhetorical purposes, I'm literally talking about a single digit number of seconds between running the failing tests and seeing it pass again. So anyway, that's just, that's the part of the post I wanted to cover. It's actually really interesting because he, again, he, you know, David makes interesting arguments, but, you know, I I think that, again, they were kind of controversial and I didn't really agree with most of them. And and, um,
1: Gary kind of pretty much destroys them. Got to think Gary is is probably in love with Swift then, since it's well, I mean it's not really testing, but your code is getting executed and evaluated real time as you're entering it.
0: Yeah, I don't. I have no idea. I don't know if he does any. To my knowledge, I've never seen him do any um,
1: any iOS stuff. Well, I think the model that Salesforce is using for te- for just programming in general just needs to be outfitted with a new language. I, I think we said that last time, but. I think a new language, you know, kind of after lessons learned might be the best way to go, but I think you're on the fence because I think you would prefer just to see them integrate, you know, Ruby or Java or something and give you direct access to an existing language.
0: Yeah. And again, I've had people hint to me that something like that is coming. And I don't, I don't know if it's just even better integration with Heroku or, or, what the implementation would be but that would be interesting um you know if apex is still going to be the first class citizen for salesforce then i mean i really think i mean there's just so many things i need to fix but this is one of them it's just the you know developer efficiency um just this this compilation and test cycle time it's just so far off and and also just in terms of developer efficiency and the experience i mean it also concerns me that you know they put they're putting like it seems to me that they're putting all of their eggs in the developer console basket, and that's frightening.
1: Yeah, it it does seem like they're trying to eventually grow that into being some kind of IDE, but it's it's just so far off from from anywhere near being that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I mentioned last
0: time, you know, man, if they're if they really want to go that route, then, I mean, first of all, it just I, to me it generates so many just insurmountable problems. Like, how do I, you know, I don't know, just like version control, um, right? backups. I mean, uh, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. But also, I mean, there's no way that Salesforce is going to develop a really nice editor. I mean, that's that's one of just the, the absolute deal breakers is the editor. I mean, it's it's terrible. I mean, so I think I said last time, you know, they should like look at grabbing, um, what's GitHub's uh, editor? The, the one they released? Adam. Adam? Yeah. yeah. They should like, you know, look at, I mean, if it, I guess if it's open source, like, I don't it know, is. and I haven't even used it so but i'm a, i've heard good things about it and i assuming it's on par with or it's probably one of the best like well, you know, I, cloud-based editors but um something like them they've got to they've got to make it better for yeah. and again it's this, i mean and i know there are there's a large cl- class of developers in the salesforce world that don't care about any of this i mean they're you know d- doing a couple of visual force pages here and there and uh, maybe a trigger here and there and it's the speed is just not an issue but i mean this is what i I mean, when I'm working on sales, when I'm doing Salesforce work, and that's what I'm doing, you know, like all day and I do a lot of it and I sometimes work on big projects and the efficiency and losses to some, to this, just the, to the quality of the tools is just huge. The good thing is there's just, there's no, there's nowhere to go, but up really. I mean, that's the good news, right? (laughs) It couldn't be much worse than this.
1: Yeah. And I don't know what the answer is because I don't think you'll ever get it you know, a client side compiler, I think it'll always be on the server. I,
0: I don't know. And that's one thing I remember asking for a couple of years ago in one of my, like, this is what I want to see this year. Blog posts is a client. Yeah. Like a client side engine that not only will compile, I can use for compiling and testing, but that I can almost run like a local Salesforce or something. I mean, yeah. And that's, and that, you're that's probably right. That's probably, ne- that's probably never going to happen. Yeah.
1: And that's what you would need. You'd need some kind of local <laughs> version of Salesforce in order for it to compile correctly. And I think
0: that's just the nature of, of proprietary closed source software. They're not going to give you, they're not going to let you run their software anywhere but their cloud.
1: Yeah. I, I guess I agree with that. But I think, you know, as with anything, even when we're doing, other languages we we kind of basically set up a mocked production environment and we're all running local testing against that you know whether it be databases or other applications that we're integrating with so in order to kind of get that same kind of workflow we'd need a copy of Salesforce basically and I don't think we'll ever get that
0: yeah and if we don't then and I mean that would be I think an ideal for me and I don't think we'll ever see that um So instead, I think they need to fix some of these other things. Like, you know, okay, if we're going to, you know, if the constraints are that, you know, it's going to, the compiling is still going to be as a service and everything's still going to be as a service, um, then that's fine, I guess. But let's, you know, let's see what we can do to address some of these issues of just speed and, and, of course, my other complaints with the Apex language and just some of the other platform stuff. I mean, but again, the MVPs tell me that, I'm going to be very pleased with some new news coming out soon. So I don't know. We'll see. I'm looking oh, forward to any, anything, anything that will improve this, that, you know, we can talk about in the future.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, at least they've been showing some attention in, in some of the last release, especially summer with relaxing a lot of the limits or at least increasing, allowing you to increase, um, how much heap size you're using or the type of future methods and batch calls and all those kind of things. Um, Hey, even in this next release, we're, we're getting the ability to use the standard uh, price book without having to do see all data.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I guess you're right. It's good that we're getting those things that unfortunately, just, it's like a whole new, it's just a whole different layer of depression for me. I mean, it's just well, it's, like, still,
1: it's still a band aid. I mean, you still have to call a specific method to get the standard price book, even though you can, and now you can create new price books, but you still have all these little limitations here and there that you have to deal with and work around that just screams you know, that this was all layered on top of an existing model and they've just kind of found a way to make it work. And the whole limit, limits thing, I mean, the, what's irritating about
0: that is no matter how many like Salesforce licenses we have or how much we're paying Salesforce, whether it's hundreds of thousands or even in the millions of dollars a year for licenses, um, you still have essentially the same limits. I mean, there are some that scale with number of licenses, but lots of them don't. And... This is Salesforce pushing their, I mean, there's a, I guess a reason why Salesforce has decent uptime. It's because they push all their performance. Well, this is not fair. Um, They don't push all their performance issues. I mean, clearly they do a lot of, you know, performance and whatever, but I mean, there's just for a large class of things, they're, they're pushing their performance challenges to their customers. And they're just basically saying, well, (laughs) we don't want to have performance challenges. So we're only going to let you do certain uh, thing, a certain number of thing you know, things per hour or per day or whatever. Right. And it's just like, well, what if I have more business than that? What if I have more data than that? What if I have more transactions than that? And we have, you know, thousands of users on Salesforce and, and the answer is, well, too bad. And so it's really not, this is when like, you know, the whole beware the false cloud, when the, when uh, Mark and Mark Benioff and um, Larry Ellison have their um, basically f- little fake um, for just, fights um that are basically just pr stunts um you you remember that the whole false cloud thing when mark was saying that oracle's a false? i mean salesforce is a false cloud too it's it's closed source it's not you don't really you can't scale you what if you want more transactions per second what if you what if you want more uh records per transaction it doesn't scale up well cloud i mean that's all the point of cloud is you can you can scale with with traffic and with volume and things and with salesforce you can't you know, you can't run local copies of it. You can't, there's so many things that just don't pass the, the cloud test. And so, yeah, beware of the false
1: cloud. And I, ironically, that came from, from Mark Benioff. Well, that was a different thing. I think he, he wanted to represent the cloud as, as this platform, this full service platform that, that, you know, Salesforce is behind the scenes. I don't think he, well, everyone else in the world understands the cloud to be are, are things like Amazon and Google Apps and Heroku. I guess Azure now in that mix. Yep, for sure. Well, I don't know that it really matters too much. I mean, Oh, here we go. Here we go. Here's
0: more. Does it, uh, can you develop and run your app while on an airplane? Uh, With Salesforce? No, right? Does it expose open technologies? No. Salesforce? No. Can you fix a bug or make an enhancement in the technology stack itself? No. Uh, If the platform generates an internal error, are you empowered to investigate and resolve? No. Uh, is the technology stack developed in the open? No. Uh, when conditions change, can you take your investment to another provider? No. Are there skills required or developed? Um, oh, are the skills you rec- acquire and develop, uh, are they applicable to other clouds or other providers? No. Uh, are there usage limits that you can't buy your way out of? No. Uh, can you get started within 15 minutes without having to speak to a human and without any human interaction at the provider? No. Uh, can you scale up and scale down and cancel without any notice or penalty? Nope.
1: Well, it's, a lot of you know, those I have yeah. to call BS on, though. Okay,
0: so be specific, though.
1: Well, I mean, we've talked about it before. I mean, in, in most cases, you're never going to unplug something and plug in something else. It just doesn't really happen. Uh, usually, you're switching because of some other limitation or some other new process, and, and it's not able to achieve that. And so you're switching to a new technology that can. And because you're not really just replicating what you're doing before, you're doing something different. It's, it's a rewrite anyways.
0: So I mean I I I don't know I guess I disagree with your disagreement I mean just fairly recently I built a decent sized app for the longest time we were running it on um, uh, Elastic Beanstalk and some things Amazon Amazon started doing we're not we didn't like so we moved it to CloudBees
1: and we run on one of CloudBees s- stacks or whatever they call them. Yeah, but you you just changed the environment that it's executing on. Both environments supported Java or whatever you wrote it in, correct?
0: Yes, but um, th- th- which is which is fine. Yeah, it was it it's was the like, same like, app. Like,
1: it was the same app.
0: I just had I have my choice of providers. I got to move providers because the provider was on. I was on. Changed the way they were doing things, um, and which we didn't like, and so we
1: were able to move. We were able to change providers with yeah, with very little effort. Still within that, I mean, there's still, I mean, if you found some kind of limitation with Java, you'd have to refactor the whole thing and rebuild it in something else, right? I if mean, you can, you can find that, counter- if we,
0: Are you saying if we decided Java didn't work for us? I mean, because that's kind of crazy, but yeah, I mean, yeah, if we, for some reason Java didn't work, then I mean, that'd be like saying, you know, I mean, I don't know. I guess it's, I think more likely stories. I guess I guess
1: I'm saying that yes, there are some cases where you can actually do what you just did because of the type of use case that you had or limitation that you had. But what if you had start started building a lot and consuming a lot of Amazon services to do X, Y, Z? That means then unplugging your code from Amazon and moving it over to CloudBees would be a little more difficult.
0: But that's why you don't. You don't have direct. You don't. You have smart engineering practices. You keep your system decoupled or at least keep a an anti-corruption layer a facade so that you are not directly coupled to third-party systems i mean that's just the way that's the way i build systems for that specific reason and sometimes you can't avoid it like for example i mean um we had we had some scripts that used that used the you know aws apis the ec2 apis to like, to like launch instances and deploy stuff and everything. Right. And when we moved to cloud Beast, we didn't use that anymore. That those were AWS specific APIs, but those actually weren't in our application itself. Like they were just kind of glue scripts. Um, as far as like the application itself, I mean, it was, it's, you know, it's all using either, you know, APIs that are like standards based APIs that you can plug in different implementations for, or, you know, we had, anti-corruption layers so that we didn't let, um, outside dependencies, you know, bleed into the system itself.
1: Yeah. And I think that's a testament to good engineering. I just think that the, the norm or at least a high percentage of it, it just doesn't work out that way, especially in enterprise where you're dealing with a lot of different systems, a lot of proprietary rules and business logic. It just, things are just not that easy to unplug and plug in something else.
0: Uh, I don't know. I see people do this all
1: the time. I see people do it with Ruby apps. Um, There's a lot of people who you're start talking with about self-contained apps. I'm talking about enterprise that has this plethora of legacy applications that are integrated, proprietary, uh, control so much business logic that it's hard to pick them apart and move them to something else. Yeah. OK, so you're talking about something that's completely
0: different than what I'm talking about. Then I'm talking about you build apps for your
1: business. And we no, we're talking about. The cloud and whether or not things are movable or open or open sourced well, like, or all okay, those so, kind of things. So, so let's I was making decide, arguments against that. Let's say that you point. decide
0: to build your customer service app in Salesforce. Okay. And you write a bunch of Apex code. There there are no other Apex providers out there that you can, you're going to go to.
1: No, there's not. You're locked in.
0: Yeah. But that's, again, that's, and again, I think it's, I think it's so weird that everyone's doing this without, really without question. But, People are building, they're investing just millions of dollars and like probably millions of man hours in, in developing on the Salesforce platform, which is completely proprietary. There are no third, there are no, um, you know, it's not a standard. You can't take your investment and go to another vendor. Right. But you remember, I mean, that used to be like, that was the, why I think like, uh, J2EE took off like in the early two thousands is because, it had all this the the promise of like you know if as long as you stick to the the official APIs you know if if you're running on IBM WebSphere you can you know you can uh, you can move to BEA or in, you know these other these other uh, platforms um, if you know if you need to and and CIOs were all about that like they would I mean there was just this whole thing for a while where cios wouldn't would not even um they it was their rule they wouldn't even use a technology if it wasn't standards based, so they didn't get you know vendor lock-in remember that vendor lock-in vendor lock-in like that was like the big evil and now it it's just is, like I, now it's i just guess like people i've seen
1: i've seen enough legacy enterprise applications that use things like j2ee or had some kind of java back end and yes they could port that over and move it somewhere else easily but the bottom line is that software is written five or ten years ago the guy who put all the requirements in place is gone the company has a whole new outlook and new initiative with a new ceo and they want it done completely differently so from that's that a perspective completely different scenario you're it's that's not i'm saying is that the reality is that yes when well, you're so heavy in development you're saying, my, development argument you're saying my argument doesn't
0: matter because no, no, no one's no. ever gonna no one's ever gonna want to do that by the time they do do that the guys will be gone and they won't want that app anymore anyway so you're basically trying to invalidate like the actual idea itself. No, I'm not saying that. that. I'm just saying that,
1: that, yes, it's, it's good to, to engineer it the way you engineer it. It's good that it was portable, but at the same time, five or 10 years from now, no one's going to care about that portability because they want to rebuild it in something else.
0: I I don't know. I don't know. That's true.
1: And I'm just saying from my, from my experience, from I mean, my it perspective. Might
0: it might be. I mean, if, if that's I'm what also, makes a business so may, sense, maybe i not keen on the so. whole
1: open idea either. I mean, there's so many open source applications out there that have done really well and are still around and found a way to monetize and have a business model. And there's plenty of others who have kind of gone down the shitter and are nowhere. They're gone. So what, what do you, what's the point? Well, I'm just countering another one of your arguments that it wasn't, it's not open, that it's, you know, ver, you know open versus proprietary.
0: I mean, like for example, I mean Amazon doesn't. Amazon doesn't really run like if like if you look at all of the services like AWS has. I mean that you can things you can run on it. Like, I mean you could run proprietary stuff on AWS. I mean they have heck they have Windows, um, you know AMIs and and they have Oracle. You can run Oracle database uh, as a part of RDS. I mean that's just uh, you know my request, kind of part of my like developer ethics. Like there are, I mean the in my opinion the best. Technologies to build on out there—they're all open source, and I don't think that's any accident or coincidence.
1: I don't. I mean, I I think there's a lot of kidding. I think when when business people or people who are making decisions on how to invest money into some kind of software package—and I'm I'm, again, I'm thinking from an enterprise company, not you know, not a company that's in the business of making software, but a company that's trying to build and integrate systems within their company—they're looking for you know, quick. You know, ways to do it quickly, ways to do it efficiently, ways for things to kind of come in the door that are kind of pre-built and and allow them to kind of kit things together. So whenever they go to pick a package like Salesforce, they're getting sold on the fact that they don't have to have the IT staff. They don't have to have anyone to, to kind of manage it from an IT perspective. They just have someone who can, first of all, point and click, which is the first entry in the door. And then there's that secondary of you can customize it with Apex and you can build solutions on it. And I think that part is really attractive. Um, yep. And that's how that happens. That's how it happens. Or it, it could. It doesn't have to be Salesforce. It could be Oracle. You know, coming in and saying, "Hey, we've got this really great, you know, stored procedure language, and if you use our features, you get X, Y, Z along with that." And so they build their application around it. Um, you know, I, I, those those kind of lock ins happen just by nature of trying to use the best features of of a given system. Yeah. And you can't well, always, and it's not always financially viable to abstract everything to a point where it could be completely decoupled and moved somewhere else, right? And actually, I think stored procedures are a good example of that. I mean, I
0: as much as I hate stored procedures, sometimes it's actually the best way to do something. I think that's one reason why Salesforce is never going to be able to kick their Oracle habit is because so much of Salesforce is baked around Oracle stored procedures. Um, but it just happens to be like you know. Or at least that's what Salesforce's decision at the time was. It was the best way to build it. And there's some things that, you know, it just really works. And it's kind of seems to be the best way. I'm sure people would argue that, you know, you could, you don't have to, or there's other ways. But I mean, a lot of things that are, you know, either performance or security critical, you know, have to be done in store procedures, which is you know, in the case of Oracle or Microsoft, or whatever, it's a proprietary language, right? You're not gonna you're not gonna take your Oracle store procedures
1: over to Microsoft SQL. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna work, or even your SQL statements for that matter, because a lot of those tend to get mixed with T SQL as well, or you oh know, yeah. whatever Oracle has for their functioning system. Mm-mm. I mean, I've never, I don't know. I guess for,
0: I think there's some simple, more on the simple side, you know, applications I've done with like MySQL, where I've been able to stick to. Pretty vanilla anti SQL, but I mean, most of the time, it is so much more convenient to use these yeah, I remember proprietary days, extensions to SQL. That was the
1: days of the of the ORMs and everything, which are still around. But it, it it tried to abstract that entire kind of store procedure logical layer from the database, and I think that ended up. I don't. I'm not so sure that that worked out in the best best way.
0: I mean, what I remember mean? my or-
1: first foray into building some kind of ORM layer, and it was just. A piece of crap it was really inefficient I loaded way too much data into memory just trying to massage it you know and sticking it straight out just a quick sequel um, that was universal and then letting the ORM layer kind of handle the rest it was just horrible I had to scrap it and go back to store procedures yeah I mean ORMs are are really hard they're very
0: complex and even the best ones like you know like arguably like something like Hibernate um, one of the best ones out there and it's most mature and most advanced. Um, even even it, I mean, just using it, the it's got a huge learning curve, and like you know, you end up always needing like um, a an Hibernate expert to get you out of certain kinds of problems. And you know, then it's like, God, why do we even decide to use ORM? We should just use, we should have just you know ret- written our own data layer with you know SQL statements
1: or something and been done with it. Oh, and then the damage starts to creep in. Someone. Someone will just write a quick store procedure to get something done and the cracks start forming.
0: Yeah. yeah. And so, well, again, it's all, it's all, it gets back to kind of like developer ethics and just ha- and good engineering practices, no separation of concerns. And that, keeping, that helps keeping when data you're, access when you're, in its own module. When your
1: bosses understand that. But there are plenty of cases where they're just like, I don't care, just get it done and you have a day.
0: Yeah. That's when you go get,
1: that's when you quit
0: and get a better job. <laughs> Ser- I mean, I'm serious. I mean, that's just, uh. unless you absolutely can't. Um, there's just, there's no reason to work in that kind of condition.
1: Uh, we've all had to do it though. At some point we in have, lives. I have had to, but uh, even know. for just the simple fact of just being a green developer and not really understanding and just kind of being the yes man, like, okay, that's the way you want it. I'll do it. Or there's cases even with clients that just specifically want it that way, regardless of you know, what the best practice is or, or, or anything beyond that, that's just the way they want it done. And that's what they're paying you for.
0: And, and a lot of times it depends on the client in the situation, but a lot of times that's when I'll, you know, politely inform the client and they, they probably should, you know, if if, it's, if what they're looking for is to dictate how everything's done and all they need is basically someone to type it in for them, then, you know, they should find, they should find someone to do that for them. Um, if what they need is they actually need someone skilled who has, that you know that knowledge and that that uh skill set
1: you know to build things in the right way then and maybe i'm your right guy yeah the problem is i always find find that situation arise or that always kind of comes up or you kind of discover that you're in that situation a little bit too late like you've pretty much already built half of it you're starting to do demos of course if you're doing agile you probably could catch that sooner but um a lot of times I find that way too late and it's just a matter of just kind of blowing, not blowing through it, but kind of getting through the project, getting it to a point where it works, it's stable, customer's happy, and you can move on to hopefully something better. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's probably not a bad compromise if you're already in the middle of it. Everything's awesome when you start out a project. It's all fresh and clean and everyone's excited. And then reality. <laughs> And then reality hits you in the face.
0: Programming is really awesome.
1: <laughs> uh, Speaking of, of, of that, um, man, big push for women in tech huh? lately.
0: I i mean, it seems like it's just sustained and it's been around for a while. Is it, has it gotten yeah, is there more I mean, of There's a lot thrust? of companies that are
1: pushing, you know, doing new initiatives and held holding conferences. And um, it's, it's been on, you know, blog feeds and everything all, all, month, I guess I'll say, um, I got to start wondering that if it's, it's probably going to level out with the generational thing. I I think maybe generation might have something to do with it. I mean, I don't know too many girls way back when that were really interested in computers as a career. I don't think anyone was actively discouraging them from it. Do you?
0: I've never seen that. I mean, but you, you hear these, these Stories and you know, I I guess you have to give. I mean, I guess what I usually hear
1: is that a woman goes into a kind of male dominated industry and there's a lot of kind of sexism still existing or something with those people, and so it becomes a challenge for them. Um, but I rarely ever hear anyone kind of actively saying, "Now you don't want to get into computers." And it
0: and it's weird because, and maybe I'm just naive, but I, I hear about that. And again, I give I give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I don't have any reason to to say that's not true, but just in, in my experience, um, I see companies just literally just, well, not literally, but figuratively absolutely tripping over themselves to hire any of the protected classes, women and, you know, minorities or people in this age group or that, this certain disability, I mean, or something, it's like they're, I mean, in fact, I was even listening to, I think it was the Macworld podcast the other day. And, um, I don't remember who the hosts were, but it was, uh, it was it was a man and a woman host, and the woman host they were talking about, I believe, Apple's management team, and she literally said, "Anything but another white man." I mean, that's and and I thought, first of all, I thought, "Wow, it's weird you can say that," because <laughs> that's really, I mean, even though I mean, I'm sure Apple's management's probably dominated by a white man. Yeah, and, e- exchange white for something else. <laughs> well, I know, have I know, flown, but yeah. exactly. I mean, and but I mean, if if that's really the, where our mental attitude is now, that. It, it's because that's a way you know. You felt that. I mean, anyone who has a brain has you, you can you can feel that undercurrent. But now the people there's you know outright saying that it's just like wow um, that this is this where we are now.
1: I just I just I'm I'm finding it hard to believe that these initiatives are doing what they say they're doing. Or maybe I'm just from the outside looking in, thinking, do we really need this? I mean, I'm not so sure anyone's actively discouraging anyone from any single profession these days and so maybe it's just a matter of just exposing them to it in order to say hey why don't you play with this computer and see if you like it if you like it maybe you could do that for a living
0: i think it's a little bit of both of those things i mean i, I guess i would agree with you that i think in general people are at least in, in any way i mean at least like in the in my experience there's always been a lack of women but there's always been but there's always been some women or you know there's usually some women and there's all there everyone's always has been. Um, like really welcoming and accommodating to you know to women um, and respectful and and everything else. Um, I'm sure there are I mean, and there of course there are there are always jerks right. There's always going to be yeah. a situation where some someone just makes a stupid comment.
1: Oh, there's a really sexist thing and people are
0: kind of idiots sometimes. <laughs> they are, but the weird <laughs> thing is, is, like that dude who makes a stupid comment around the woman or about the woman and she's right there or not right there, whatever doesn't matter. That's this guy who's going to make a stupid comment about uh,
1: yeah,
0: the handicap guy, or just or someone's, you know, someone you know, just someone's boss or someone's coworker. I mean, he's just there are always jerks, and and that doesn't make it right. I mean, that's still being a jerk is being a jerk, and making people feel uncomfortable for no good reason is you know that it's is not acceptable. Um, yeah. But my point is like, any I've never been anywhere where that was acceptable, Um, and it sucks that people have to do have to experience the, the bad end of that, but it's just never been acceptable. It's never been like this environment that's, um, and and if it was, uh, I don't know. I mean, I guess if there was an environment like that, I mean, I would suggest no one worked there, even men. That's, and that's why I think like, I think these things, again, it's a lot of it's generational, but they're, they're working themselves out. I mean, you see less and less, that's really rare. Again, I, I hardly ever see anything like that anymore. But from, a, I'm, sure, from these but I'm sure it kind does of, happen.
1: These kind of type of events where they're kind of, you know, holding these, hey, let's get a bunch of women together and show them computers. Do you think these are worthwhile?
0: Well, like, again, I, mean, I any I,
1: any worthwhile than just the, you know, everyone everyone should know how to code initiatives and all those kind of things.
0: It's a I I think that's a really good question. Um if you're trying to see the good side of these things, I think any uh, you know, like programming is one of these areas where there's a lot of like um a lot of activity to get women involved. Um and even young girls, right? Which, I, which actually I think is probably the more important part. Um, but let's say for, for adult women, I mean, anything, if there are a lot of women who kind of would be interested, but they see that the fact that it's male-dominated it makes them uncomfortable or feel like they're not welcome, or it's, or it's going to be a hostile environment, like anything that can be done to help them get over that and maybe see that, maybe that's actually not true in, lo- in most cases. Because I, I lo- would like to think that, in most cases, that's not true, but I could see how women looking over at us, us being like the industry, um, would say, Oh, I mean, just look at that and be very intimidated and think uh, that's no, that's scary. Or there's, there's gotta be a reason. I mean, there's a reason why there are hardly any women over there. They must be jerks or maybe some jerk, you know? I mean, so anything that can, any of these, I think groups or activities or conferences or whatever that, that help women see that, Hey, you know, it, it is okay to come check this out. And it's, this is not something that's just for men. It's for anyone who's interested. Um, especially with the just proliferation of technology and cheap computers. And there's like no reason anyone who's interested shouldn't be doing this. Um, so to that end, I think those are good. Sometimes I think though, like, I think there's, I definitely think there's a a valid problem here. What I, most of the solutions to this are what I think are somewhat like, uh, ill conceived or misguided. I don't like seeing events and things that are like gender exclusive or race exclusive or some, in some cases it's race and gender exclusive. I'm like, I'm not sure that's the right message or that's the right solution to this, you know, to take, if the problem is an in, in exclusive gender, then creating more ex- gender exclusive things, I don't think is the right answer. Right. And to me, that's just, it's like a logical, obvious thing, but cause I, like, I th- don't we need to be bringing these different quote groups together. And I say I say that in quotes because like we shouldn't even have these. They shouldn't even be groups. They're artificial fictions of our mind. These are just people. And if they're interested in programming or whatever the thing is, then they should they should do it. Right. We shouldn't have this group that codes and that group that codes and this group that codes. And everyone's got their, you know, nowadays they're they're five oh one three Cs and you know, that are again, they're they're splitting us up. Like Yes, it, yes, it's male-dominated, and, and again, back to pr- the programming thing. But like, let's let's not make more like official divisions. Let's do things that are bringing everyone together, not creating more gender-exclusive things.
1: Yeah, and I th- I think um, I think a lot of that's right. I just I just have a hard time believing these initiatives are actually accomplishing anything because I think the fact that these conferences exist and there's so many women in these conferences when they go to them says that I don't think there's a real issue there. I mean, maybe there's some issue with other things, but I don't, I don't see the trend where it's, it's going down. I, th- I think the trend is going up. So I just, I just wonder if maybe rather than all these, you know, very specific groups that they're creating, like you said, you know, women or race or whichever um, third world nation that they want to teach to code and program so they can set up, you know, some body shops or something, you know, I just, I don't see the value in that. I don't see where it's helping. It just seems like a bunch of people validating each other in a in a like minded environment um, it's really I'm, not going anywhere, yeah I'm not sure I mean I'm not sure it is helping
0: them and i'm I'm not sure it's the best way to help them. I'm not sure that's the best way to get involved in an activity is to do it in such a in such a way that focuses on the exact thing that you didn't want people to focus on. I didn't want you to focus what I have in my pants, but now you put the, me in this group that all it says about me is what's in my pants,
1: yeah. So, what do you think about maybe a scholarship program for you know to help women get educated or you know women that want to be programmers and and help put them through school? Because I think that's the other side of it. I think, uh, I think, I think both Amazon, I'm sorry, Google and Apple, I think both have similar scholarship programs. Maybe even Microsoft.
0: Uh, you know, I, I mean, I think scholarships are good, and and I, I really, particularly merit based scholarships and I think, I mean, I don't know. I think that's, a, I think scholarship should be merit based. I again, I don't think it should be, <clears throat> well, this gets in like the, this is a big thing now, like the, uh, like enrollment quotas that like some colleges have, and uh, some States are starting to make those illegal. And I guess colleges are starting to go away from them, but a lot of them still have them. You know, they want to have a certain percentage of this color and that color and this, you know, sexual orientation and that, you know, whatever they're trying to hit all these, um, percentages and quotas. Um, you know, that always has, I mean, that, that might do some good in some areas, but always, it always, uh, there are always losers in that game. And unfortunately it's, it's the losers are people who were actually qualified to get in the college, but got, but it got excluded due to some superficial aspect of their body or their background or something, which is unfortunate. And I think, I think, you know, scholarships that are targeted towards anything other than merit is, would have the same problem but i don't know i also think that there's a lot that needs to be done to help these kids that are in you know bad homes with bad parents you know in bad neighborhoods you know that just if they don't if they're not getting help from at a very early age special help um then they are they have no chance for success basically um but i really don't think it's exclusive to any of the groups that you know the media and the you know some of these professional activists like to divide us by, you know, there are kids that need help that are of all colors and origins. And we should, we should make sure that they're all getting the help they need and getting the right opportunities. Um, I just don't know that it's, uh, I don't, I don't know that it just falls down along these traditional lines that we, you know, to this day seem to still be divided by.
1: Right. Man, that got really serious. <laughs> <laughs> it did. And we're probably all wrong about it. Cause we're two guys I mean, talking about women no. in tech.
0: I mean, I, again, I'm, you know, I think we need to be as inclusive as possible. And I think there are problems to be solved. There are real situations going on where, you know, women are being treated Uh, improperly or they, or they just, they are, they feel intimidated, you know? And whether anything, any, whether anyone did anything to make them feel that way or they just do, I think that's a problem and it needs to be addressed. Um, I just, some of the solutions I see, I think are counterproductive.
1: Yeah. I just know from my experience in the number of years I've been doing it, I've always worked alongside, you know, females or even of any gender or color in just about every place I've worked at in it or in IS or whichever, I didn't really see any kind of exclusion and maybe I was just lucky to work in the right type of environments. Um, but for me, in my perspective, I just, it's, it doesn't, it's not really apparent that it's that big of an issue and maybe I'm just missing something really big out there. Or maybe it's just this new thing that everyone's doing because someone else did it and it's a huge PR thing. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I saw, um, so I think it was um, Pantene, maybe one of these shampoo brands they had a, like a, a little marketing thing where they basically, uh, I wish I could remember the gist of it, but it was that, um, women, um, I don't know, aren't treated fairly or something. And therefore you should use Pantene. I don't know what it was, but, um, I saw uh, time.com did like a kind of like a rebuttal against that. It basically just showed some studies that, you know, yes, like 70% of 70, like something like 72% of women feel they've been, uh, discriminated against because of their gender in the workplace. But like 68% of
1: men feel the same way in hair care industry. Cause there's no guy shampoo. There is, but all yeah, I get to is. use is whatever my wife buys or, yeah. or the fancy that's, body wash that she that's, buys. That's, that's what I, that's I smell different like problem. a woman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure that you can blame that on the shampoo industry. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, you tell me how many choices there are, but I, but I guess, I don't know. I guess my, my point here is that yes, women do get discriminated against because of their, I mean, again, there are jerks, but men get discriminated against too because they're men in different ways. Um, and regardless of which, you know, sex is doing the the harassing and or the discriminating against them and it's wrong. And then you stop, but I, I, you know, my experience I think is, is similar to yours. I mean, I don't know. I've seen women move right up through the ranks lot faster than some of the men have and, and vice versa. Um, and it's just been, I, maybe I've been lucky. I've worked in kind of, you know, meritocratic type of
1: environments. Meritocratic. Um, Oh, pulling out the big words. Is that a word? I I don't know. I I just, I'm like, I never heard that word before. (laughs) I guess given context, it means X, Y, Z. Um,
0: yeah, just, you know, meritocracy is where really just whoever's doing the best job is. Yeah. Is who, who, who gets rewarded. Um, Anyway, what else? Hey, uh, so a couple months ago, we talked about you were starting to do some, to use the squid tool that helps you build custom UIs and things in Salesforce. Is you still working on that?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Still quite a bit. Um, uh, I guess, uh, I guess I'll say fortunate enough to have a client who's kind of all in on it. So I get to kind of explore just about every inch of the tool. Um, Which means moving beyond just the straight drag and drop stuff and trying to get into creating custom components and using custom templates and then trying to figure out all the different various options, parameters, arguments that are available during those contexts. So it's been, I I will say I continue to have a love-hate relationship with it. I enjoy working with the JavaScript portion of it, but JavaScript in this context is difficult. Because there's really no IDE, it's kind of difficult to implement some kind of testing system or anything like that. Perspective from the client is still try to is to still try to get this in production as fast as possible. You know, doing less testing in a sandbox and more testing in production, so that that kind of mindset stuck, and I haven't been able to change the tide on that. So, so essentially, any time a change happens, they just want it in production so they can test it or they can see it working, or if there's an issue, we'll just do it right then and there, because that's kind of what they've been conditioned to with you know previous implementations of these screens. And unfortunately, the stuff that they've been asking me to do is a little more complicated. I'm having to do a lot more kind of customizing with JavaScript, a lot more kind of custom coding. So I'm kind of getting past the threshold of point and click. It's kind of the same evolution I had with Salesforce, where you get to a point where you're doing all this cool point and click, and then you get to a point where you just can't do anymore, and you have to start coding. And I love JavaScript, but again, the tool set isn't there to really provide a really nice medium for testing or debugging or anything like that. So I'm constantly having to fight with the system and do a lot of inspection and do a lot of little tricks like object dot keys, variable alert, so I can see what's in that darn object. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that, I think that's a common problem with
0: some of these systems that are built on JavaScript is, uh, but you know, it's such a dynamic language. And coupled with that they seem to not always document everything really well so yeah you're just you're you're just like dynamically inspecting things to reverse engineer or right. to figure out what's happened what's happening and again if it's a system where you don't have the source code that really sucks cuz you are just you know really going through stuff i mean it's, i guess as a a counterexample or just a to expand on like one of my earlier things i was talking about with you know it's nice if a system is open source for various reasons, but like I've been building a mobile app and I'm using Sencha touch and you know, it's all, it's all, well, it's mainly JavaScript based, of course, but, um, but, but all the, like all the entire framework is open source and the, the, their documentation is pretty good, but I mean, there's just so much that could be documented. That's not. And it's great that I have the source cause I can just go figure out exactly what's happening. And, and I, now I understand how that component works better or I know how to use it better. Or to, or to do some more advanced usage of it, um, you usually have to go to the source to see what's happening or how it's, how it's working. And without the source, I don't, I don't know how you do
1: that. I mean, it's just it'd be a way less efficient process. Yeah, but that also kind of eats time away too when you're having to go to that level. I mean, it's great that you have access no, to the source. No, it saves but- me time.
0: It saves me time is my point. If I didn't have that, I'd be
1: really screwed. I mean,
0: it'd be, it would really be like forensic level, like trying to figure out how something works. Just by
1: poking, yeah. And I guess if you it. have the unminified version of the source, right now the only—I mean, I could get access to the JavaScript libraries that are supporting it, but it's all minified. Mm-hmm. Minified. Yeah, and I'm working with.
0: I mean, once you when you compile and package everything, everything gets minified. But I'm the the sources that I have now are all um, not only are they not minified, but they're really well documented uh, in line, as well. So it's
1: pretty nice. But
0: it's but it's holding up though.
1: It, it is holding up. It's, I'm learning some new tricks in terms of how to make things a little more efficient. Um, I think one of the cons that I'd mentioned earlier on was that it's really easy to create, you know, 20 or 30 models in one screen. And that gets really slow. And there's a performance issue with that. And then if you're kind of relying on less on filtering and more on database level security on a large system, that's just going to it's just going to crawl. It could break. It's probably not going to render. So now there's some lessons learned there. So, why is that? Because secu- you're kind of getting filtering by security,
0: right? It's so like, you know, if you know a, a user only has access to certain records, you
1: just do an open query, they're only going to get those records returned. How would that slow you down? Because when you're not, <laughs> when you're an admin level and you're trying to test.
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: Okay. Gotcha. Or or you're, you're C-level and you have access to all that underlying data. Um, so what what ended up happening is that For those users that were in small groups and lower on the role hierarchy, everything was working great. But then as you got up higher, I started getting timeout errors and things like that. And so I had to kind of redo some of the models or move them somewhere else into a secondary page and then include them into the page um, and do some kind of lazy loading technique, which is all good performance stuff. Um, So it's worthwhile to do that effort and make it happen. But, you know, kind of the lessons learned from that along the way. So does it not do like paging by default?
0: You, you set up a model with a source. Does it not? You know, well, it pages does in? for a
1: single model. But you know, because of Squid and it, the way it's drag and drop, what a lot of people are using it for. Because I mean, with Salesforce, you get you get a list view, you get your editors, and all those kind of things. What Squid provides is the ability to drag and drop and create all these different models from all these different things. So what I'm seeing is a lot of people building console type applications with it, where they're you know pulling in half the information from the account, half from the opportunity, you know, some, all these different related list informations and kind of kidding them together into this one massive screen that they think is super awesome because everything's all in one screen. I personally prefer to focus a little bit more than that. Um, and I think mobile's is, is a great, I think mobile is good for us as, a, as a consumer of applications because we're forced to live within a smaller screen and we're forced to focus with, Bits and pieces of information, rather than this, just what used to happen and is still happening with web applications. You're just bombarded with all this data um, to the point where companies are are trying to figure out, oh, what's the right screen size for everyone so they can see the most stuff on the screen, or, or we're going to buy you two screens so you can have X, Y, Z all up all the time. So, from a usability perspective, and from my own philosophy, I prefer to see a smaller chunk of data. But what Squid enables you to do is to you know, see and interact with all this data all at once. And so that can lead into performance issues.
0: Yeah. But that's, you know, that's is it safe to say that that's not necessarily like squid's fault. That's just like, you just have to, you know, design it well. And I mean, any, you know, any browser, if you just load tons of tons of records into it, and if those records all making it into the DOM and whatever, I mean, you're going to, you're going to hit a limit or you're just, you know, It's not necessarily Squid's fault, right?
1: Right. Yeah, no, it's definitely not Squid's fault. It's just kind of the nature of having a very open tool like that, that if there's not a lot of best practice or... I I guess I could put some fault on Squid because I don't see an active campaign from them that says, hey, let's make things more efficient. Here's how you do it. You know, It's still kind of the Wild West for them out there in terms of documentation and all that kind of stuff. So people are just kind of doing whatever the tool allows them to do. Uh, which, like I said before, it's a good or bad thing, you know, sometimes having some limitations forces you to be a little more creative, forces you to work within some level of efficiency, but other times when you really need that power, it gets in the way. So yeah, there's no, there's no right answer to that. You know, Mm. I I think if I had to side with it, I'd side with it being more flexible than more restrictive. So I can't blame squid for that. Right. I did have some issues with some versioning, though. Um, different versions, like we had a version in the sandbox that didn't match production. And when I went to deploy, things were just acting really weird and wacky, which unfortunately is really hard to debug because it's all client-side. Um, I didn't really have a consistent environment to, to say, oh, here's the problem and I can fix it. So it was it was awkward to try and debug some of that stuff and try and transition. And of course, the, the copying and pasting is still kind of a pain in terms of deployments.
0: Oh, yeah. Um And didn't you say you have to copy and paste like query or like the the definitions of things?
1: Yeah. So you can access the actual XML behind a page, a given page, which has pretty much everything about that page, how it was built or how to build it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, deploying is just basically copying that information and pasting it. Because those those
0: are stored in like records,
1: right? Database records. Yeah yeah and and then when I inspected the records it looks like they're <laughs> spanning it across a couple of fields to get around salesforce's field limits be nice if there was an option to like in support
0: part of like just metadata deployments to also send just arbitrary records of data and
1: and that so you can have like one tool for your deployment it would especially it, for like things like custom settings I always have to kind of multi, kind of phase my deployments especially when there's a custom setting involved just can you not, can you not do custom settings and
0: oh well I guess the 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 metadata you can, but not the actual the data records. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Now there's no dependency on the actual data, so the tests will still run, and you can still deploy. But a lot of times, that stuff is just setting data that's not going to change. It is what it is. Um, at least for that version of the application. So, yeah, it'd be nice to be able to include a package of data to go with it. Yeah. Hey, there was some. Uh, I saw
0: there was some some in- some Salesforce Insider selling going on this week. Really? Um, yeah. Mark sold forty thousand shares, worth uh, two thousand. Sorry, no two two point three million dollars. So his bank account must have been getting low. <laughs> and then uh, Parker Harris sold over eleven thousand shares, which was worth like six hundred and fifty thousand, which was like that was like half of his shares. Really? Yeah. He's down to almost half. He's down to like well fourteen thousand now. So he's only got 800000 of Salesforce stock left, like 100000 dollars worth.
1: Why do you think that is? I don't know. These guys are just blowing so much cash, man. I would think if they were.
0: I think it indicates there's
1: definitely not any kind of merger or buyout option coming because otherwise they would want to hold on to that, right? Well, or also, that, what does it also tell you about what they think the future of Salesforce stock is? Like if you're selling off, if you just sold off half your
0: stock, what does that say about what you think of the pro- trajectory of the stock? And what do they know that
1: we don't know? And that's the whole thing with insider selling. Yeah, we all just kind of come to our, our own worst case conclusions. <laughs> that's what that means. So, are we going to Dreamforce? I don't know, man. You scared I me mean, with if that. If we don't, if we don't make a that decision, living the in someone else's know, house thing. Just,
0: man, these Airbnbs are good, dude. Look at Just look at some of them. Go tonight, search on. San Francisco, and I mean, you can see, you can. I mean, they did a really good job of like documenting what it looks like, and you can read everyone's past reviews and everything. It's I don't know. <laughs> this is a
1: year I might be okay skipping, but <sighs> and, and, and next year we just need to kick it early. I just I don't know if I could stay in someone else's house, some stranger's house. I mean, the problem is, I mean, Dreamforce is so big that there is no early. I mean, you're just
0: basically. I mean, well, if you want a thing. hotel.
1: You know, when I first started going, it wasn't that big. I mean, it was it was still big, but it wasn't huge like it is now. And the last time I went, it was just too big to the point where I just was not enjoying myself at all. I I was happy once I got into a session or got a chance to to just kind of walk around, but it was, it was just this cattle call, this like wave of just people elbow to elbow constantly.
0: Yep. Well, that's why all the non Salesforce people in San Francisco they hate Dreamforce. or at least the ones that live over in that part of town
1: yeah but yeah i i I find every year that as it gets bigger i find less and less value from it and i'm not sure if that's just because there's so many options and so many people it's hard to get to valuable content because all that gets taken up really quickly and the keynote you know there's really nothing special to being there in that room with the keynote other than i don't know maybe if you sit close enough you'll get to you know, rub elbows with with some famous person or something that Benioff brought on to to do a song and dance or something. I don't know. We are so excited. <laughs> Other than that, I mean, I guess for me, it's like going to a sporting event. You know, I I prefer watching sports on TV when I given when I watch it. You get oh, better just a angles. Homebody. You're you're a homebody. No, you get John. better angles. You get better food because you're at home, (laughs) you get to kick back and relax on your favorite chair, all those kind of things. And when you're there, it's kind of nice to be in that atmosphere and see it directly. But unless you spend a ton of money or or get there really early in the case of the keynote, you're sitting way in the back anyways, watching the screen. But isn't it, isn't it about the hallway, you know, conversations and stuff? Yeah, it used to be, used to be able to walk around and see people and talk to people, but now it's so packed. You can't find a place to sit and just Unless you just wait till the session start and then you can just find a quiet place to relax and maybe meet a few people who are also doing the same thing. Beyond that, everyone's just like rushing to get to their next meeting or to the next session or rushing to get to the next, you know, keynote or whichever. It's just this constant movement of people. And there's just no opportunity to sit and relax and just socialize. Aside from I guess when they, the first evenings, you know, they have the the kind of display floor or whatever they call that. Or you can walk around from booth to booth, but even that got really packed in and the booths got bigger and the gimmicks got bigger and worse in some cases. Um so even that kind of in terms of enjoyability went downhill for me. I I've been trying to get you to Dreamforce and I'm now convincing you not to go. <laughs> right?
0: I was trying to hype myself up to want to go because I also hate crowds, especially big ones.
1: But the other thing is I felt obligated to do a lot of things because I was being sponsored by another company to go. And I think that I still believe that firmly that if you and I can make it work, let's make it work. And, you know, John, you could make it work. It's just, do you want to or not? Fine. I'll make it work. I'll stay at some stranger's house. And if I die of some (laughs) weird disease, I'm blaming you and I'm haunting you. I will haunt you. So we're we're going then. Yes, we're going. Fine. Okay.
0: All right. I'll start searching Airbnb. You should too. And we'll compare notes and.
1: No, you do Airbnb down. and you find us a place and and I'll just No, because sh- then
0: you'll just blame me for everything that goes wrong. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, yeah, I'm gonna involve you
1: in the process. Uh, fine. Put some listings up and I'll I'll look at them and see if they're acceptable. Oh, this is this is all right. This is akin to making me go to a buffet and, and making me eat the buffet. No, I'm not endangering your health. How how is that not? I'm mean, in some stranger's home and I have to shower and in, in their shower and dude. Do you think a hotel's cleaner? I, it's a mental thing. I know it is. I know <laughs> it's touch inconsistent. the remote control? In a- <laughs> don't, don't do, do that touch, to me. Do not touch the bedspread? Don't, don't, don't do that to me. I already got enough phobias. I don't need you adding to them. I purposely try not to think about things like that because I will, I will turn into a hermit because I will just not want to touch anything the world touches.
0: I don't even like it. Like when you're getting out of the shower in a hotel and like, like your leg brushes up against the, the shower curtain. Oh, I wear like, sli- oh! slippers in the showers. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm not. Um, no, I don't really. I probably should, but I don't, I do. but just the shower curtain. Like I hate touching oh, yeah, the shower I can't curtain. touch the shower curtain. Oh, that's gross. I can't do that.
1: <laughs> anyway. All right. So do we have anything else to cover tonight today? Oh, just my, I, I wanted to mention this awesome little life hack. Okay. And that is using a a freaking little Lego character to hold your cables. That's freaking awesome. Have you seen that? No, you have to send me a picture or something. Yeah. So essentially the little claw hand of a Lego piece can hold your little Apple cables. So like your little cable, your little iPhone cable. And um, yeah, all you do is you take a, a regular rectangular piece of Lego and, you know, put something sticky on the back of it. Hopefully something that won't ruin a surface of whatever you're putting it on. You attach that to something and the little Lego pieces, they have little holes so you can stick them to actual Legos. Right. And so you just stick that on there and it could, you know, you could pick out your favorite character, superhero, whatever, and just have that little dude holding your cables. It's, I'm awesome. having a hard time envisioning this. You will have to send me a picture. Yeah. I have, I have a link of one. Um, but yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty cool. <laughs> I thought it was awesome. Uh, ah, Everything is awesome. That's where that song came from. The Lego movie. Yep. yep. Yeah, that's true. It did.
0: Everything is
1: awesome.
0: <laughs> what's that? What's the other part? Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Is that what it is? <laughs> that's right. Okay. You're following the instructions. I've never even seen the movie. I've just heard that no? song too many times. Kind of like let it go. Heard that song way too many times. And you've never seen Frozen? I've seen parts of it. Okay.
1: How did you get away with that? Just not seeing them. Well, I c- it's been on. It's just, I've never watched the whole thing. What about the Lego movie? Have your kids seen that? No. It's, I I liked it. It's a little slow. Like my son, who's two, got bored with it. Um, but he'll watch it now that it's out and we can watch it at home. But at the theater, yeah. he got bored with it and we left. Or my my wife left with him. It's hard to get a two-year-old to sit through anything, though. Yeah. But my daughter and I went and saw it when it we went to the theaters and we enjoyed it, so... Cool. But she inherited my Lego craziness. Yeah. Back then Legos were just blocks, but now they have all these special characters and, you know, now they cater to little girls too. So she has all these little girl pieces, which kind of sucks because I can't just buy Legos for her and play with them because they're all girly.
0: (laughs) Which is again, part of the irony of like trying to get girls into certain activities. Like all we do is like paint, paint them pink and put hearts on them and ponies and, (laughs) It's like uh I'm
1: not sure, <laughs> sure that's <laughs> There you go. We just need like a pink Apple computer and uh
0: well Google had a the other day Google was there um they had a note it wasn't a doodle but it was like right into the search box or something about girls coding and when you clicked on it it like went to this page that was like pink and hearts and stuff and I'm just like, "Oh, really? This is <laughs> That's like Yeah, that's the opposite of what we need to be doing. <laughs> I think that's like patronizing, isn't yeah. it? I I think so. Yeah. Again, doing it wrong.
1: But then again, we're not girls, and maybe that's just, that's just what appeals to women. And it, I don't know. My daughter loves all things pink. She's into Hello Kitty right now, and I just don't get it. It's just a crudely drawn little cat, and she wants everything Hello Kitty.
0: Yeah. Uh, I think a lot of it's just like peer. They see that other girls like it, and
1: oh. Oh, did you see that Netflix freaking raised their prices? they freaking raise their prices. Yes. But That's you know thing. why? You lose. So so what happened today is that all of a sudden my son couldn't watch Netflix. And he watches Netflix all the time. And it turns out that they've changed it to where you can only watch Netflix on two screens for the 7.99 plan. If oh, you want to watch it on more than okay. two screens at the same yeah. time, you have to pay this next four screen plan that for 11.99 a month. Well, wow. That's it, highway robbery. And damn it, I bought it. <laughs> Some, I'll be damned if I can't watch my Netflix because my kids are watching something. Let me tell you, at, at 12 bucks a month, you—that that is
0: such, if, if your house is anything like mine, that is the, about the absolute cheapest and most effective entertainment that we have.
1: It is. I can't, I mean, I can't we would, get if, too if, if they raise their prices to $50, my wife would make me
0: still buy
1: it. I just hate that. I didn't hear anything about it. I had to wait till I had an error on my screen to go. I heard oh, about this months ago. They were raising that price. I didn't. I, why didn't I get an email? I, uh, maybe I, I because I heard it.
0: people complaining about the number of streams thing, but we, I don't think we ever do more than one. So we're still on the cheap one.
1: No, we've got what, three or four iPads in this house and they're all running Netflix at one point in time. So that means that all of you guys
0: are watching your own Netflix show at the same time. Yep. Y'all need to talk to each other more, man.
1: <laughs> Interact. I have it on the background while I work sometimes. And the kids, they have it on to try and keep quiet while I'm on the phone. You must have some good bandwidth. I do. I have Fios. Yeah. Bastard. Aren't you jealous? Yes. I was shocked. Our, our We have some new neighbors and they actually pulled the Fios out in favor of DirecTV. I was, I was kind of shocked.
0: Well, DirecTV is... Uh, see, I don't know if um, when I had files and of course it's been years and whatever, but the, the picture quality was actually excellent on their TV service. Um, very low, you know, high bit rates, really high bit, rate, Way higher than cable normally is. Um, and, that, and at the time it was higher, clearly higher than what direct TV and dish network were as well. But since then direct TV and dish network have pretty much massively deployed MPEG four. So mm-hmm. they've been able to basically, you know, substantially increase quality, and lowered bandwidth at the same time. So DirecTV is pretty damn good now. Um, I think Dish, in fact, we even when we still had Dish, it was it was good, uh, much better than cable, picture quality was. But, so I'm assuming that Fios still has really good picture quality. The big problem with Fios at the time, TV, was those terrible
1: cable boxes. Which they've since um, upgraded. So now they have these yeah, really tiny that. boxes, and they're pretty awesome. But it, TV aside, the internet itself is still the best internet out there. It is, which is why my main, the main thing we watch
0: all of our content on is a Mac mini. Mm. The only thing, so, because that's the thing about these, you know, the Apple TV or the the new Amazon thing, um, Roku, um, what are the other ones? PlayStation, Xbox.
1: Um, Amazon now. Th-
0: yeah, that, I think I said it. Anyway, um, oh. they all can watch most content, but there's something that all of them don't, aren't able to get. Like, you know, on Amazon, you can't watch iTunes stuff and vice versa and whatever. There's, all of them have little limitations and gaps in their coverage here and there.
1: On my Mac Mini, I can watch all of it, right? Yeah, assuming you're going to subscribe to all those services and spend probably $60, 80 bucks a month.
0: Well, like, no, I have I have iTunes on that we watch on the Mac Mini, all my iTunes stuff. Um, we, we're an Amazon Prime,
1: I can watch all that stuff. Yeah, but that's a monthly fee. The iTunes you have to pay to rent or watch. No, no, no we Hulu. do. I'm just saying.
0: No, I'm just saying. But but yeah, but it's all. I'm not saying it's all free. I'm just saying
1: there's nothing I can't watch. Right. Because of the cho- choice of box. Are you using some kind of um application that kind of shows all that? Well, so yeah, so
0: like you know there's Plex and yeah, there's that's um, we're Plex. we're actually using XBMC. I keep meaning to look at Plex again. I used to use Plex, but I had to go away from it because I upgrade so I think I went to upgrade it to um I think it was like Snow Leopard or something. Um it broke Plex and it took them forever to fix it, so I switched to XBMC and it's been fine. So I haven't looked at Plex again. Plex is really awesome for apparently it's gotten really good at like multi device stuff. So it'll like in, re-encode and stream stuff on the fly to your other devices. It's, it's apparently pretty awesome, but um, we're still on XBMC. Um, but like for Netflix, we just use the web browser. Now here's the one downside. The only downside I've got so far to ha- having the Mac mini as the home theater PC. When you watch Netflix, you're watching it through the browser, right? Mm-hmm. And, It uses a Silverlight plugin, which sucks, but that's not the big problem. The big problem is Silverlight doesn't, in fact, as far as I know right now, there's no browser technology that supports Dolby Digital. So all the Netflix shows that we watch that we really like or any movies on Netflix, I can get pretty decent picture quality. I mean, the Netflix picture quality is okay, but the sound is all just two-channel. And I have like, you know, a a speaker system and the Dolby Digital and DTS and all that. Um, But Netflix will give me the two-channel stream and not the Dolby Digital or DTS stream. So what I have to do, what I'm doing is first, this is stuff I've already paid for right through Netflix. I'll end up having to like torrent it or something to get like, even for like orange is the new black, which like we could watch on Netflix. I end up torrenting it so I can get
1: a copy of it. That's got Dolby digital. So how are they getting Dolby digital? I mean, how are they getting a a stream? Oh, Because,
0: because uh, um, if you, I guess if you, I don't know, they're using, you know, a Roku or something and just capturing the stream somehow. Hmm. Because Roku, if you watch Netflix on on the newer Roku, it's got it supports Dolby Digital, and I think um, the PlayStation does, probably Xbox One, and Apple TV does as well. So that's the only downside. Other than that, I love having the Mac Mini as a um, theater PC. I've had this one for like six years. I mean, they're not cheap. You know, it's like probably five to seven hundred bucks to get one that's equipped enough. Um, and I'm getting I'm I feel like I'm fairly due for getting a new one. Did that been, one even
1: have HDMI
0: on it? It does have HDMI. Mm. Yeah, well, I
1: mean, it's just, a
0: great little box. Um, the only thing I've done to it is I upgraded the RAM, and I think it came with like one twenty-eight. No, hang on. No, uh, it came with like a couple of gigs or something, and I think I put. I think it's got like four in it now, mm. or maybe it has eight. I can't remember. But it was. It didn't have enough RAM. Other than that, and then I also plugged a. Um, it only has. I think it has like a half, like a half a terabyte hard drive in it, five hundred gig, and but I've got a little USB three disk on top of it, it's like another terabyte or it's actually behind it you can't see it but it says external
1: storage so yeah, it's it's great yeah no i just got the apple tv and my FiOS, and i'm good with that yeah i mean you can go a long way with that there's i'm, I'm ready for an apple tv upgrade though i'm kind of i don't really like the interface i need a better interface um it seems like we'll get one this probably this summer. Or this That's fall, what I'm right? hoping. I mean, th- there's some new channels being added to it, you know, every so often. In fact, recently I think that we got some new National Geographic channels and ABC News and all those kind of things that popped up. So it looks like they're getting some traction on at least getting some content. But yeah, I need a better kind of UI or interface for navigating all that stuff.
0: Yeah, it's. I I have the original Apple TV, which we don't ever use. But I've I've heard some people complaining recently that just that it's starting to really feel dated. Yeah, uh, the interface. Well, it feels so.
1: dated, and it's just not a good way to really find content. I mean, there's just there needs to be a better mechanism for finding content, searching content, and even just navigating it. It's kind of like the same way that a that you look at a guide and it's just got a ton of screens. You know, a ton of um, you know, shows all categorized. I mean, the app screen is starting to fill up. But anyways. All right. What'd you bring a drink? Um, just coffee again.
0: Coffee again. What about you? I heard some ice jingling over there.
1: Um, I was using your gift, your uh, cognac. So I oh, had yeah. a little bit of that on ice straight. Yeah. Didn't mix it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure you'd be offended if I mixed it. No, There's a lot of things you can mix cognac with. That's, makes yummy cocktails. Yeah, so how do you like it? Just straight. I do like it. I mean, I, I still need a little bit of water in it cause I'm not all that used to it. It's a bit sweeter. I want to say than I'm used to,
0: it feels sweet. I mean, there's no residual sugar in it, but it does. Boy, there's so many like esters and just yeah. uh, so much sweetness to me. It's like, I get a lot of apples from the, that
1: cognac in particular, but yeah, it's that know. kind of tangy sweetness. Yeah. 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 So I do like the ice. I like it a little bit better when the ice melts into it a little bit. Um, cause that cuts that sweetness a little bit, but other than that, yeah, it's great. I enjoy it. Cool. Cool. So we got a show? I think so. All right. Good day, sir. All right. Good day, sir.
0: Thank you, uh, Dr. Pepper.